Support for Kansas City Today comes from Grandma's Office Catering, delivering made-from-scratch hot meals and individual boxed lunches for fast distribution to offices, warehouses, and factories, even on nights and weekends. Details are at grandmascatering.com. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Inujiadeen. Today is Friday, September 15th. Coming up, creating a great silent film score comes with little recognition. The theater organist really ought to be forgotten when the movie starts. You just help the movie along. We'll meet a Lee Summit musician bringing back the art of silent film soundtracks. Plus, the Farm to School movement is out to revolutionize the humble school lunch. As I saw that product come in, the freshness, the the color, the flavor, it just made it all worth it. But the path from cropland to cafeteria in the Midwest is full of unexpected twists and turns. But first, some headlines. The mother of a Liberty North High School student is suing the district for failing to prevent bullying that contributed to her son's death. Sophomore Logan LeBlanc died by suicide in March. The lawsuit states the school district ignored reports of repeated bullying and suicidal ideation. Attorney Dan Jmievsky says LeBlanc's mother, Christy Rice, doesn't want this to happen to other students in the district. We don't want children to have to not only get to the point of suicide, but get to the point of refusing to even make reports because they know it will do no good. The Liberty Public School District says it takes students' welfare seriously, but is limited in what it can share because of pending litigation. Two new federal lawsuits filed by Kansans argue natural gas providers increased prices during a 2021 winter storm and took advantage of customers. The complaints say several companies in the gas supply chain raised prices to more than 100 times the normal rate, adding up to more than $300 million. Kansas Governor Laura Kelly had declared a state of emergency, and the lawsuit says that limits how much companies could increase prices. Attorney Jay Fowler says customers are now paying for it. The customers in these groups are paying an additional payment to service the debt caused by these prices that we think are unlawful. Fowler says the goal of the lawsuit is to recover the excess charges and redistribute that money to customers. A federal judge has sided with Shawnee over its controversial co-living ban. KCUR's Savannah Holly Bates has more. Shawnee's ordinance says only three unrelated people can live together in a single living space. It also prevents companies or private residents from buying properties to use as room-to-room rentals. A lawsuit brought against the city by a Shawnee resident and homeroom, a Prairie Village-based property management company, alleged that Shawnee exceeded its authority by regulating landowners instead of the land itself. But Judge Holly Teeter found that the ordinance did not violate the plaintiff's constitutional rights and agreed with the city that a corporation has no protected rights in this matter. A lawyer for Homeroom said the group has plans to appeal. We'll be back after this. Support for this podcast comes from Panasonic Energy. Powered by Kansans, Panasonic Energy is working to drive a greener future for transportation with advanced EV battery technology. More at na.panasonic.com. Before sound came to the movies, silent films ruled the silver screen, and music from a theater pipe organ enhanced the drama. One local organist is reviving that tradition. KCUR's Julie Denishay has more. Dr. Marvin Falwell sits at the console of a tall wooden theater organ in the living room of his Lee Summit home. The silent film Peter Pan is playing on a small flat screen above him. 
With one eye on the screen and the other on his music, the retired dentist's fingers move across four tiered keyboards. Well, I wanted it to be a happy sort of a thing. The 1924 silent film is the first adaptation of Scottish author J.M. Barrie's 1904 play. It's just a charming movie. I think it really goes back to Betty Bronson, who plays the role of Peter Pan, and she just lights up the screen when she does it. Another character is Ernest Torrance. He plays Captain Hook. You know, he is so mean you have to laugh at him. Falwell's been playing theater organs for silent films since 1985. He creates a unique score for each, using authentic music from the era. Over the years, he's accompanied more than 200 movies, with silent film stars like Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. I have a large selection of music that was made by composers back in the 20s and the early portion of the 1900s. Most of it's what's called incidental music. This is music that's chase scene number one and love scene number five and battle scenes and all that sort of stuff. The earliest silent films were screened in the late 1890s, usually with music played on a piano. As movies became more popular, theaters got bigger and they needed a bigger sound. A few theaters featured full orchestras, but it was cheaper to hire one musician to play a theater organ, and their booming sound easily filled the space. By the early 1910s, almost every movie house in the country had a massive pipe organ. Falwell flips color-coded tabs to show off the different sounds. You have these notes. You have these notes. You have these notes. And then you also control the volume with these two big pedals down here in the center. The reign of silent films was brought to a close with the 1927 premiere The Jazz Singer, the first feature-length motion picture with recorded speech and music. When the talkies came in, the organs were no longer needed. They were lowered down into the pit. Some of them were cemented over. Some of the pipes just remained in the chambers and the roofs leaked and they all fell apart. A few organs got saved. Volunteers, people with interest in it, came and bought them for $100. Most were lost. Kansas City Music Hall's instrument is one of a handful of grand old theater organs that were saved and restored. Falwell says it's a thrill to perform on it. Well, the Music Hall is a great organ, and everything just goes up a notch when you're there. Watching a silent film with a live organist is more than a trip to the movies. It's also a concert. But Falwell says the music he chooses should only enhance the mood on screen never call attention to itself. The theater organist really ought to be forgotten when the movie starts. You shouldn't be doing anything that's highly technical. You shouldn't be loud and overpowering the movie. You just help the movie along. Still, at the end, audiences do react, and they love it. Nobody hates applause, I promise you. When people are responding to what you're doing, that makes it all worthwhile. Even though all eyes will be on screen when the lights dim, Falwell will be doing what he enjoys most, bringing silent film to life. For KCUR 89.3, I'm Julie Denishay.
and more schools are offering students fresh, locally grown food in their cafeterias. It's the big idea behind the farm to school movement, and there's a lot of federal investment behind it. Harvest Public Media contributor Ray Solomon reports those dollars aim to reshape school lunch menus and strengthen local farm economies in the Midwest. Derek Hoffman is poking around a dense row of bushy tomato plants on his 100-acre farm on the outskirts of Greeley in northern Colorado. He's filling a white plastic bucket with ripe cherry tomatoes that he's already sold to the local school district. These will go to Greeley Evans School District here just down the road. <laughs> five, what about five, or five miles from their, uh, their warehouse? In about a week, kids will be snacking on them in nearby school cafeterias. Hoffman's tomatoes are part of a growing farm-to-school movement revolutionizing the humble school lunch. When farm-to-school programming works as designed, kids fill their plates with fresh, nutritious food, and local farm economies get a major boost. Hoffman's farm-to-school contracts brought enough financial stability that he was able to quit his off-the-farm job. It's allowed us to, to grow. It's allowed us to do what we're doing. It seems like such a simple idea that benefits everyone involved. But while Hoffman and the schools he works with represent the best outcome of farm-to-school programs, they are hardly the norm. Getting local food into schools has proven frustratingly complicated. We often hear that schools and producers initially don't talk the same language. Cindy Long administers the farm-to-school program at the United States Department of Agriculture. Schools think about, oh, I need, you know, 7,500 servings of this, and farmers think in terms of, you know, bushels or crates. Long's agency has been funding farm-to-school efforts at the federal level for more than a decade. She says the challenges have included the cost of local food, training cafeteria staff, and an admittedly bureaucratic purchasing system. To get past those challenges, it takes solutions that are flexible, specific, and above all, local. Schools and producers really just needed an ongoing source of support to help take folks from interest to actually being able to execute. Recent policy changes at the federal level make providing that support a new priority. Last year, the USDA started funneling unprecedented amounts of money to states specifically to get more local food into schools. At least $260 million directly fund local food purchases and related farm-to-school infrastructure. We have been describing it as trying to drink out of a fire hose because there's just so much money coming down from the USDA. Sunny Baker with the National Farm to School Network says all the money coming from the USDA is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to give school lunch a head-to-toe makeover and integrate it into local food systems. One of the best things that can come out of this like massive influx of money is going to be that we're developing really incredible examples of how this can work and like learning what's possible. In northern Iowa, for instance, those investments trickled down to the Clear Lake School District in the form of $8,000 grants to buy farm-fresh food through a new network of regional food hubs that made local purchasing a breeze for Food Services Director Julie Udelhofen. As I saw that product come in, the freshness, the, the color, the flavor, it just made it all worth it. Udelhofen was always interested in farm-to-school programs, but without support, the process was just too burdensome. Now that she's got a taste of it, she does not want to go back to business as usual. 
as long as my budget looks good and I can support it, um, I'm going to get that food in front of the kids. There's just one catch. That fire hose of extra funding is not permanent. It runs out at the end of this school year. Judahofen is hoping her local food service can outlive the money. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Ray Solomon. Harvest Public Media is a collaboration of public media newsrooms in the Midwest and Great Plains, including KCUR. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujiadeen. This podcast is produced by Trevor Grandin and KCUR Studios and edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. To read Julie's story about pipe organs and Ray's story about the farm to school movement, visit KCUR.org, where you can find more local news from Kansas City's NPR station. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Back in 1948, everyone agreed. Activist Esther Brown's superpower was pestering people. It's unusual for the NAACP nationally to involve themselves in this kind of a a small case. But I was halfway hysterical all the time and, and wouldn't leave them alone. I guess they had to. How a determined group of women integrated a grade school five years before Brown v. Board. That's on the podcast, A People's History of Kansas City.